Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. I'm going to read that verse, and then I've asked uh, the other Mark, Mark Lawrence, to pray for the ministry of the Word. Matthew 6, verse 9. Pray then in this way, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Let us pray. In our study on prayer, we've uh, entertained a few of the questions uh, presented a few weeks ago. One of the questions that we will entertain briefly here uh, this evening is that question, and I, I freely admit I don't know the complete answer, but the question is, may, we, may prayer be offered to all three persons of the Godhead? And I have read a couple of things on that, and one of my professors um, practiced that practice of, of praying to the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, um, and made a point of saying that he felt that that was something that the scriptures do allow. But what we're really looking at there is that trinity and unity of the Godhead. That there are not, um, as one commentator says, the three persons do not make one God, they are one. They are one in essence, yet they are three distinct persons. And yet, generally, and I'll probably leave it at this tonight because I do want to address a couple of areas uh, this evening on praying to the Father, but generally we address God by speaking to the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. And we find examples of, even here in the Sermon on the Mount, of where Jesus instructs us to pray 
our Father who art in heaven. And yet we know that the disciples felt very free, in fact, very needful to beseech Christ, teach us to pray. So we know that they addressed him directly. And it is said that there are prayers to the Holy Spirit in the scriptures, although I cannot find a specific example where he is addressed, although it is said that in Revelation chapter 1 that there is a reference to prayer or beseeching the Holy Spirit. But tonight I want to just address this one, prayer addressed to our Father, mainly because it's the one we see the most, obviously in the Old Testament, but even in the New Testament, prayers directed like Jesus does when the disciples had in another place asked him, teach us to pray. He began by saying, pray then in this way, our Father who art in heaven. And yet we know that this is not a prayer that everyone can say. Because prayer addressed to our Father can only come from a certain group of people, can it not? Only those who are rightly connected to the Father through Christ by the Holy Spirit. Only those who are believers. Only those who have received Christ. Only those who have received the spirit of adoption as his children can address that prayer, our Father. And he says, our Father who art in heaven, or other versions, which art in heaven. And these ought to, at least in the first blush, remind us that we're not speaking of an earthly father. We are speaking to that father who is unique and one and only. That we speak of him, when we speak to him, we are reminded that we speak to one who is of first order in majesty, glory, and dominion. And it reminds us that we come, as the scriptures say, with reverence and godly fear. But it also reminds us of who we are as his children, made in his image. It reminds us, as the psalmist says, we did not make ourselves. He made us, and we are the sheep of his pasture. And so we ought to come with that certain amount of remembrance when we address our Father, which art in heaven. And I want to look at this under just two headings. And I was greatly helped by the book that I did find on the Theology of Prayer by Benjamin Palmer, but also some things fleshed out by my own professor at seminary, uh, Dr. Morton Smith, where he kind of helped me see these in a, a little bit different light. Um, not that Palmer was wrong, but kind of brought Palmer's uh, discussion into a little bit greater focus for me. And yet, I see two things here that neither one of them set apart, but discussed, and I, I look at them as, as different things. Uh, praying to the Father first, as if I could use this word, and it sounds a little crass to say it in a sermon, but the economic priority of God as Father, that, that authority, that 
first place in the Godhead. And then under what I would call special grounds, some, some things that just remind us of, again, as, as Jesus speaks of him here, our Father which art in heaven. There, 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 again, there is just something that, as our brother prayed, that, that makes our knees kind of knock, even if you're kneeling on them, as, as we come before God in prayer. And so the first of these, prayer to God the Father, on the basis of his priority, I believe the title itself, Father, suggests authority. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul writes of God and of Christ this way. He says, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom all things are made, and we exist through him. See, it's not, again, that there one warrants more worship and adoration than the other, and yet there is that economy that, that the, the Greek allows us to see that word, that we see God portrayed as the creator, from whom are all things, he says, and we exist for him, and yet it is through one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom all things were created, and we exist through him. There is this priority in creation, and priority, if we could say it this way, in the sphere of grace, that the Messiah, the, the Son, Jesus Christ, is subordinate to God the Father. Jesus himself says in John chapter 12, For I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me commandment what to say and what to speak. He's not denigrating his, himself or his work. He's not asking him to, us to look at him with, without awe or reverence. What he is saying is, this is what I was appointed to do. For this I came. That the Father has sent the Son to save his people from their sins. See, there is just that authority, that, that just that priority in the sphere of grace. And it does still. And this is where in my, my study of the Trinity or, or the covenant of grace and how the Trinity works together, I, I, I feel so uh, inadequate here. But, but we speak of the unity uh, of the Godhead. There, 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 there's no quarrel there. There is, there is no contention there. There is that perfect economy and that perfect order. And Palmer says, we are careful, quote, to say unity, not union. For there might be union between parties wholly separated or simple cooperation, a concurrence of effort, and not a unity of purpose and design. And yet in the Godhead, there is that perfect unity of purpose and design, and perfect order, and perfect communication, and perfect execution of what God's purposes are. And so I think we, we take his, his warning very seriously. Not union, although again, I think there is that union of the Godhead, but it is really a unity. There is a oneness even in their economic plan and design. Also, we see this priority 
And we, as we see God as the source of providence, the source of all care. Psalm 145, the eyes of all look to thee, and thou dost give them their food in due time. It is a very lost person who does not see the sovereignty of God. And yet, as I read through uh, sections of Charles Hodge commentary, you know, I'm, I'm thinking this is 1871 uh, when this was published. And certainly, you know, they, they didn't really know a lot about the laws of nature. Uh, yes, they had Newton's laws, but they were still, I would say, somewhat primitive in science. And yet, uh, Hodge says, all around me there are men who, who are now speaking in terms of how there will be that letting go of prayer and of seeking God, because we know that there are laws of nature that are laws. Things will happen according to this order. And yet, the scripture teaches us that how foolish that is. They have no way of knowing. Or, or if, again, perhaps not a very good illustration, but what came to my mind is they cannot sing, who is it, with little orphan Annie? The sun will come up tomorrow? How do you know if God is not a God of providence, providence and, and, and sovereignty? How, how do you know? There's nothing in the science that says it's science except that God has made it, created it, and given it to us. I think Genesis speaks to that, that this times and the seasons and those things are given to us so that we can have some certainty to our lives, some things that organize our lives. And yet the psalmist says, the eyes of all and perhaps he would say, all ought to look to thee. And so as Hodge says, that prayer assumes, we, we make these assumptions when we pray, that God is, has personality, and that God is near us, and also that God is in control. He's in control of all the forces of nature, all the laws that we call laws of nature, all the powers of this world as we know them. And so he goes on and says, quote, prayer also supposes that the government of God extends over the minds of men, over their thoughts, feelings, and volitions, that the heart is in his hands and that he can turn it even as the rivers of water are turned. See, when the scientist or the, the atheist says, you know, we, we can start leaving off prayer, you know, you need to wean yourself of that and move on because we know these laws are certain. What he doesn't know is that his very thoughts and volitions are in the hands of God. And so our prayer directed to the Father takes this into account. We, we, we pray with that awe and that reverence of him and, and again, that holy fear. But we also see God in the scriptures as the lawgiver, the lawgiver and judge. And Palmer reminds us that the law consists of two parts. He says, the precept that guides and the penalty that binds. And God is, is sovereign over these. He is the lawgiver. He gives the precept or, or what he calls, this is the disclosing of the purpose and mind of God in the law. This is 
I am holy, you shall be holy. This is what he's revealed, and yet the other part of the law is the proclaiming of his supreme authority. You shall keep the law. You shall walk in it. You shall live in my commandments. And yet we find in the scriptures that truth that says that man can do, not do that. Yes, God is the lawgiver, and yes, the God is the judge, and we are guilty before him, and yet, and yet his perfect remedy, again, the, the trinity in unity, so amazing that man could not have dreamed of it. Philippians, in, in Philippians, Paul tells us Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. That obedience of Jesus Christ, that humbling himself, that act of bringing himself under that law and that penalty. See, a, a, a man will try to do the one, but he fails, and then he comes under the other. And, and yet, in the perfect will of God, Christ humbled himself, became obedient even to the point of death, even death on the cross, and he fulfilled both that precept that guides and the penalty that binds. He, he was perfect in both. And Palmer says this, in his active obedience, he fulfilled all that the law enjoins. In his sacrifice on the cross, he satisfied its vindictory justice through a death that was strictly penal. He, he says he exhausted it all in his obedience. And yet, God, as the lawgiver and judge, says this is what is required and this is what will happen. And yet, the only reason we can address that God, that lawgiver and judge, is through Christ and through his perfect obedience. So again, we pray to the Father because of that, that authority, that providence, and that he is the lawgiver and judge. But there ought to be some reminder to us of the special grounds of offering prayer and praise to him. We've already touched upon the, the first of these, but he, he is the su supreme object of worship. Psalm 99, and it, it's almost as if, you know, when you read the Psalms, we tend to gravitate, at least I do, tend to gravitate toward those who talk, that talk about what God has done. We almost move immediately into, you know, what he's done for us. And yet Psalm 99 begins this way. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim, let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion, and he is exalted above the people. Let them praise thy great and awesome name. Holy is he. See, he's the supreme object of worship because he is. He is, and just because of who he is and his being. And the creature, no matter how fallen, no matter how low we may be, he ought also always to worship him who created him. It is, I think, the supreme sin that the creature will not worship the creator. That the one made in the image of God will not acknowledge that God. And I think in, in me, 
Yes, pride. But I think greater in me is that lack of turning to him at all times and in all places and in all circumstances in prayer because he is worthy of that worship because he is God. But we also, the special grounds of praying to him as a father is that of which the New Testament speaks of him as the source of our adoption. And what does adoption mean? But it's a legal change of your status from servant to child, to a child of the king. You, you are no longer slave, but you are a son. You are a daughter. You are a child of that one who is king of kings and lord of lords. It, 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 he is the source of that. In Galatians 4, Paul reminds them, he says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that he might receive the adoption as sons. See, again, it, it, it's in the, the, the desire of God, the purpose of God, to bring many sons to glory by adopting them by saying, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You are with, without hope and without God in this world. And yet, the Father has adopted you. He has said, I will make you mine through Christ. And again, we don't have time to unfold all that that means. But listen to Palmer's exposition on this. He says, all that salvation implies deliverance from the punishment, the power, the pollution, and finally the presence of sin is involved in this adoption. In the grasp of this single word are held not the cold dogmas of a creed, but these transformed into a force of a true life beating within the bosom of Christian experience. See, he's saying to us, do, do you understand? You know, we look at these and sometimes we just say, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm saved from sin. I'm saved from the power of the devil. I, you know, I, I, I've been brought from the kingdom of the darkness to the kingdom of light. And we kind of put them down in that cold dogma of, of a creed. I believe this. I believe this. And, and maybe our heart is there. But he's saying there is a warmth here. There is, you know... The Father, who is in heaven, has adopted you as his child. No merit, no desire on our part, no understanding of what that was until he took us from the pit and set us as his child. And I think he would call us to say, if that doesn't, Light a fire in your heart. I don't know what will. And finally, this special reason, special things that we ought to keep in our mind as we pray to our Father, which art in heaven, is that He has made us, He calls us in the Scripture, the portion of our souls. In Psalm 73, the psalmist cries out with his, his prayer, his complaint, Whom have I in heaven but thee? 
And besides the desire, nothing on earth. In his exposition on these and his, his volumes on these, Spurgeon uh, quotes a number of men as, uh, in every psalm, uh, people who, who've ex exposited this, these scriptures. And he, he relates a story that one of the men told of a, of a friend who he, he went to a party and he was very expectant going to this party because there was a certain person there who, who, whom he loved with all his heart. And he was looking forward to, to having sweet discourse with that person. Just that, that a time where, you know, I'm, I know you're going to be there and I'm looking to meet with you. And just that heart to heart. And alas, as he got to the gathering, he found that that person was delayed and not able to come. And instead of just saying, well, I'll just mingle with those who are here. It was that such a special longing to be with them that he could not enter into the revelry and to the, the joy of that party. Because he was like the psalmist. Whom have I in heaven but thee? If I were to go to heaven and the Father was not there, and I had to search. Would, would, would you not feel that void so tremendous that it would be a vacuum that would just tear you apart? He says this is what we ought to feel as a psalmist. And besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. The things of earth do, do not attract me at all. It is that meeting with the Father, that desire to be lifted up to his throne before him, that I long for. And all other interaction pales in comparison, is not even close. And he says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God. Again, that, that phrase that gets us every time in Scripture, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And then later, a couple of verses later, he says, it is good for me to draw near. Or as one version says, it is good for me to draw near to my God. See, he's saying, God is my strength. God is my portion. And that's ought to do something to us. The vision is, once again, as we've talked about, of God upon his throne, in his throne room, inviting us, drawing us to himself. Not we pulling God down, but God drawing us and inviting us to draw near to him. And we see the graciousness, the tenderness, the loving kindness with which the Father desires the intimacy and conversation with us. My flesh fails. The psalmist says may fail, but <laughs> my flesh fails. But he is my rock. And the Hebrew says it that way. The strength of my heart the rock of my heart. Sure, strong, immovable rock. That is our God. So as our strength fails, we rely on his strength. The scriptures call him a very present help in trouble. <laughs> a very present help in trouble, in trial, in temptations. He is our rock. He is our strength. And he says, my heart may fail. <laughs> 
and yet God is my portion. The connection there is simple. And I was thinking, man, this has got to be something really technical. And so I had to to start looking things up. And then I realized, no, the Hebrew talks just the way that we talk. When there is to be a division of the inheritance, they, they, they lay it all out and they count the number of people and they divide it evenly. And yet, when you think about that, you think, oh, I might inherit some money. I might inherit some property. I, I, I might inherit a business. I, I, I might inherit the family pet. And yet the psalmist says, but God is my portion. My inheritance is not something that is going to be stolen. My inheritance is not something that's going to be spent and then it's gone. My inheritance is not something that is going to burn at the last day. My inheritance will not diminish because it's God is my portion. My inheritance is not of this world. It's not subject to decay. It's not subject to depletion. And notice he says, he is my strength and my portion forever. It is never going to run out. It is never going to be gone. And it was ever going to be full. Every time I look to see that account of my portion, it's going to be full and complete. Every time I spend something, it's still full and complete. And it is forever. So Palmer says to us, in praying directly to the Father, the tenderness of divine grace is in view. See, we see that plea. And our heart ought to plea like that. Whom have I in heaven but thee? But God is my strength and my portion forever. And so Palmer warns us, he says, we ought to look at prayer directly to the Father, not simply that the sinner is forgiven. Yes, as beautiful and as wonderful and as wow as that is, that's not all. And he says it's not merely to be admitted to the presence of the Most High and to have fellowship with him. And it's like, wow, you know, Palmer, you're you're ratcheting up here. If it's not just that a sinner is forgiven and it's not just being admitted to his presence, what is it? And he says, it is, quote, with a nature transformed into the divine likeness to receive blessedness and glory by the right of heirship in direct transmission from a father's hand. Not until we reach the heavenly state and look upon the face of our king, shall we know the fullness and tenderness of that love which enables us to say, when we pray, our Father, who art in heaven. Let us pray. Father, these are grand and great and glorious things. And they're spoken of you. And we rejoice in them because they were given for our edification. They were given to stir us up. They were given that we we might talk about them in our families and talk about them with our children and talk about them as we gather together for worship. These are the things that ought to to resonate in our, our minds and our hearts as we come to you in prayer. That you are our Father. 
which art in heaven. Oh, Father, enlarge us with these things. Cause any thoughts that, that may be good but are not to the edification and the building up of your body and our, of our nature and holiness to, to drop away. Father, that we may grasp these things, that you would be glorified, you would be honored, you would be praised. In Christ's name we ask these things. Amen. Would you please rise for the benediction. And I'm not sure that I can make a direct connection between what we just looked at and this verse in 2 Corinthians 9, but I came across it in my reading this week. And it just, the, the adjectives just jumped out to me. God, uh, God enabled Paul to write this, this sentence to us. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Amen.